1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Lori Flores, the host for this podcast episode, and today I'm very happy to talk with Sophie Egan, the author of the book Devoured, How What We Eat Defines Who We Are. It originally came out in hardcover in 2016 and is coming out in paperback on July 25th of this year under William Morrow, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. Sophie Egan is the Director of Programs and Culinary Nutrition for the Strategic Initiatives Group at the Culinary Institute of America. She holds degrees from Stanford, which is actually how I met Sophie in the first place, and we'll talk about that, and UC Berkeley. And she's written for Sunset Magazine, uh, in addition to being published in Wired, Bon Appetit, Time, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times Well blog, and is based in San Francisco. Hi, Sophie. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for talking with me. Um, So Sophie and I have not talked in like 10 years, maybe. I was about to
0: say that. Yeah, I think it's a decade. A decade,
1: a decade. But this is the great thing about social media, right, is that we were able to find each other again and reconnect in this great way. So the way that Sophie and I first met was that Uh, She was an undergraduate at Stanford, and I was uh, teaching a class in Mexican-American women's history, and you were part of that seminar. That was the very first seminar I taught on my own as a grad student at Stanford.
0: And you were terrific, Professor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can't believe it's been so long, and now I've been able to proudly witness you writing your own um, really wonderful book, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about it today.
0: Thank you. And I should mention, I I live in San Francisco now, and I uh, still credit you with introducing me to the incredible mural art of the Mission District of San Francisco.
1: Yeah, that was so fun. For this seminar, uh, we did a field trip to the Mission District to look at, you know, murals produced by Mexican-American women. And it was just, that was probably one of my favorite teaching moments because we were able to get off campus and just go look at this beautiful artwork. And now you get to see it all the time. Yeah, it really stuck with
0: me. It's so spectacular.
1: Yeah. No, I that's the first thing I do whenever I go back to San Francisco, which I do sometimes for research. I always go to the mission and just go see all those murals again. They're always changing. Mm -hmm.
0: And it doesn't hurt that the mission has some of the best food in the city as well.
1: (laughs) Yes. Let's talk about food. And, um, burritos are certainly a part of that (laughs) story. So, um, I want to start out Sophie by asking you to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself.
0: Sure. So as I mentioned, I live in San Francisco. I'm actually originally from Seattle, Washington. I'm a proud Pacific Northwesterner. came to the San Francisco Bay area for school, as you mentioned. And one of the most uh, formative experiences of my life was actually in fourth grade when I lived on a farm in Tuscany. My parents are both writers, and my dad thought it would be fun to finish up a manuscript of his uh, while uh, sitting on the the balcony of a of a farmhouse <laughs> in the Chianti region. Can't imagine where he got that idea. <laughs>
1: Not a bad um, idea.
0: <laughs> but it it really uh, it, it was. I was so young, and yet it really. Shaped so much of my professional career in a lot of ways because it uh, got me thinking about where food comes from. It was so eye opening down to something as simple as, you know, the fact that the chicken nuggets I'd been eating back in Seattle came from actual chickens, like the ones on my farm. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a a connection to food and food production. Uh, The olive oil um, uh, makers or or the uh, farmers who grew their own. Um, olive, olive trees and made olive oil right on site. All of those kinds of sensory memories really stuck with me. And so, uh, in, in college at Stanford, I did go back to study abroad in Italy, studied in Bologna, the stomach of Italy, mm-hmm. uh, which is considered the gastronomic heart of the country. And that's saying a lot, obviously, for a country that is known for <laughs> amazing food and appreciation of, of uh, artisan, uh, food products nationwide. And during that time, uh, it was really the first time in a class I'll never forget. um, that was taught by Massimo Montanari. It was the first time I understood the concept of a national food culture, really even the concept of food culture anywhere, regional uh, city and so forth. And it got me reflecting quite a bit on American food culture. That was kind of the seed that was planted uh, back in the United States after studying abroad. I then worked at. Sunset Magazine, which is the lifestyle publication of the American West, and I actually got to work uh, as a food and travel writer, so developing recipes that really leverage the uh, most iconic ingredients of the American West, and I also got to travel around a lot of uh, the Western United States, uh, understanding uh, different regional specialties, the history of farmer's markets, all kinds of restaurants like Chez Panisse in Berkeley that kind of uh, started A food revolution in the United States. And I I really enjoyed that experience, but I was uh, hungering to focus more specifically on health. Uh, So I went to UC Berkeley, got a master's of public health um, with a focus on health and social behavior, and really turned that into basically a uh, food studies lens on public health. Uh, I'm not a kind of traditional public health type of person, but it was very clear to me that food was at the center of so much that had gone wrong uh, in terms of obesity and diabetes and also was, was such an opportunity, um, to improve a lot of the issues beyond merely the, you know, biometric issues, but around kind of social isolation and, um, the distancing that can happen in the, in the tech age. So just the power of food to connect people was also really exciting to me as an opportunity. So, uh, during that time was actually where I had the chance to finally sit down and um, map out a book of my own. And that is where I studied very closely under Michael Pollan, who has become my very close personal mentor. Uh, I uh, worked with him one-on-one in independent study to actually create the the book proposal for Devoured. And so after graduating with my master's, I uh, got a book contract and started working both at the Culinary Institute of America where I'm currently uh, a director leading health and sustainability initiatives to improve the food service industry, uh, and also working on that book and continuing to work as a freelance writer on uh, food, uh, psychology, culture, and health, and all of the interconnected, uh, all of the ways that those things are interconnected.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great summary. Um, and backstory to how you became interested in the material that eventually produced this book. And one of the things I really admired about it was that you are able to, you know, brilliantly thread together a lot of discourses that are separated oftentimes. So Mm. um, in my own work on farm workers and labor history, that is, you know, more recently becoming connected up with histories of food, interrogating how, workers are treated along with how food is produced and how healthy it is for us. And what I really liked about your work was that it does mention labor. It mentions popular culture. It mentions health and um, epidemics, social epidemics in our society. And that can include isolation and loneliness and um, just pop culture in general. You're so ab- You're so able to speak to a lot of different generations through a book like this. And so I really enjoyed reading it. You, Um, your prose is just, it's fast moving, it's fast paced, but definitely accessible and understandable. And those influences through your time in Italy and Stanford and Berkeley and working with Michael Pollan, it definitely comes out in this work. So, um, I really admired that.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah. I I never would sort of pitch it in a to lay audiences as, you know, the fact that it's so interdisciplinary, but that really is the crux. Um, it weaves together, you know, psychology, nutrition science, food science, uh, behavioral economics, history, as you mentioned, American studies, and and so much more. And I really kind of summarize it in the in the popular pitch as like the Freakonomics of food. You know, it holds a mirror up to our eating habits, peels back the layers of meaning, uh, the things of elements of daily life that may seem mundane, and and shows why they're actually really profound and driven by. Uh, these deeply held uh, national values. So I appreciate that comment. And I, and it was also interesting to, to decide how much of my own personal experience to come uh, mm-hmm. to bring in, but it was certainly informed by all those experiences.
1: Yeah. And so in the beginning of the book, in the introduction, you talk about, or you use this phrase, the American food psyche and American food culture. And you lay it out for the reader really well in the book, but um, for the sake of our listeners, how would you talk more about that concept? What is our American food psyche? What values are we driven by? Um, and how is that manifested in the way that we eat?
0: Sure. So uh, the concept of the American food psyche is what I use to describe the collective mindset uh, of Americans the, with regard to food choices and eating experiences. It's it's the Kind of subconscious relationship to food on a daily basis. And one challenge of the book was coming up with a way to generalize. So, of course, it may not apply to every single person out there, but it was based on really years of research and identifying common themes throughout our history as a country uh, and the three kind of national values that were that had threaded across our history as a people and seemed to be affecting and shaping our eating habits in the most essential ways, uh, were work, freedom and progress. And I explore the ways that, uh, you know, the kind of American dream and the pick yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, you know, mentality that you can, you can do anything if you work hard enough. Um, there's so many positive elements of that part of our national identity. And yet, uh, with us working more and more, uh, hours than ever before. It's not leaving a whole lot of time for eating uh, or uh, creating food, obtaining food, preparing food. Um, it's kind of food as fuel is is a, a bit of a an unintended consequence of the importance of work. So that's one example of those three core values. I'm sure we'll get into more, but those are essentially the, the framework that I landed on that really helps to explain why we eat what and how we eat in the United States. And that's what's at the the center of the American food psyche.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Work, freedom and progress. And you start out with chapter one, talking about convenience. You know, that's another value that we have that is certainly interconnected with work, freedom and progress. We want things faster. We want things easier. So how has that been affecting the ways in which we start with the first meal of the day breakfast?
0: Yeah. So it's no surprise to most listeners, I'm sure, that Americans care a lot about convenience, right? We're known as fast food nation. But what's interesting is the way that that demand for convenience, that expectation of what a meal is, of what constitutes a meal, uh, how that has really rapidly evolved over time. And I call it the model of the modern meal. It's this real blurring between the lines of between um Times you eat and times you don't eat, and between meals and snacks. Uh, and so, as far as the first meal of the day or breakfast, you know, it's uh, been fascinating to observe the way that not only do many Americans um, skip breakfast—I was stunned to learn that only 40% actually eat it every day. Wow! But many Americans who even do eat a breakfast eat it on the run, and increasingly, food companies are aware of of that fact and have designed more and more options. They're for enabling more eating on the run. So, for example, more and more kind bars or breakfast burritos, anything that's portable or preferably one-handable. Think about like go-gurt, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, many people feel that it's too much trouble to uh, actually whip out a spoon and eat a yogurt. That's too time-consuming. And so, there's just been this really stunning acceleration of the availability of um, of the kind of morning like products, uh, that we're cobbling together and calling breakfast or calling lunch, uh, and how they're kind of spread out throughout this bizarre parade of the weekday. Uh, and part of what I described too with that is that there's this real rejection of that weekday norm, which characterizes daily life for so many working individuals and families who are you know, in the rush to get off to school and get up, off to the office. Uh, the weekend brunch popularity has taken off um, and is actually more popular than ever in the United States. And that seems to really represent everything that weekday breakfast is not. It's one of the fewer, Mm -hmm. uh, the the increasingly rare times that people eat with other people Mm -hmm. at a table, eat real food as opposed to food that's processed or in a package. Uh, And also it's, it's one of the, the few times that they're not looking at the clock. It's really where they, where we're, kind of let ourselves off the hook to just spend all day in pursuit of a meal uh, and really slow down. And it really represents a pause. And as I said, it's really kind of the antidote to the frenzy of this muddled uh, cobbling together of of packaged portable foods during the
1: week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we go all out on brunch. We go big on brunch, both in terms of time and in the types of food that we luxuriate over. And during the week, it's like, like you said, it's a granola bar. It's a fast, very fast, and very sugar-packed often choice mm-hmm. for breakfast, right? Breakfast is becoming dessert, basically.
0: Absolutely. And there was a, uh, a great Vox uh, article recently that um, had a nice chart. that really captures what I, in, in the book, call the dessertification of breakfast. Uh, and it, it does this great side-by-side comparison that really kind of hits home this point that I describe of the way that marketing around a lot of breakfast foods, uh, you know, think of the, um, Oh, what is there? There's, there's a variety of brands like nature Valley or, um, uh, you know, general meals that have uh, like breakfast biscuits or, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, things I of that it. nature. Mm-hmm. And in reality, it's just in the branding. You might just call it out and say, you know what, it's cake for breakfast. Let's just be honest. <laughs> uh, but it's convenient. It has uh, what I describe as a health halo. Uh, and that's sort of this uh, stunning psychological phenomenon that people um, at seeing certain claims, uh, certain labeling mechanisms on packaged products will actually think that the product as a whole is better for them. For, so, for example, if they see low fat or non-GMO, it's like, oh, it doesn't matter what the inherent value of the food is or what the ingredients actually are. Um, we just have this sense, this, um, this halo uh, for the product as a whole. And I see this with countless dessert-like breakfast uh, packaged items.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And we'll talk more about that sort of labeling, non-fat. Know this, know that. What you call the selling of absence. Um, uh-huh. We'll get to that in a in a few minutes. Um, the chapter chapter two, which in in which you expound upon the work week, like you were talking about, we're so starved of um, this kind of social interaction over food or with food during the work week that we, you know, try to make up for it on the weekends with our brunch. Um, at work, we encounter food in various ways, or we negotiate our relationship with food in various ways. Um, how has the workplace changed Americans' food culture over time?
0: So the workplace with, with Americans
1: working, so
0: today Americans work about 200 more hours per year than they did about a generation or two ago. And it. It, it really is, uh, there's a variety of factors. I'm not an economist, but there are a variety of factors at play there. Uh, one part of it, no doubt, being the fact that with smartphones um, and the kind of pace of email communication, teams often working across time zones and even internationally, there's a sense of always needing to be on, right? There's, there, we're tethered to our work, uh, which has increasingly eliminated the boundaries on kind of the start and end times of work. But beyond that, there also is just a a sort of a moving into the office. It's like the office as hotel um, where you're, you know, working longer hours in person as well. So some people, um, you know, the the workplace increasingly people feel that they can't leave. There is too much pressure. There's too much stress, Too much competition, uh, so they, you know, we've all probably been victim of the national epidemic known as sad desk lunch, where we, um, you know, kind of have the keyboard as as placemat going on <laughs> Crumb, crumbs. The mouse pad moved. Over yeah. The, tube. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're probably getting some grease all over, but you're you kind of have this illusion that you're continuing to be productive. So, you know, you kind of look over your shoulder and hope your boss like, Sees that you're still, you know, at work um, while you try to scarf down your sandwich or what have you, uh, and the the death of the of the lunch break is a really stunning, uh, relatively recent um, trend. And in fact, I, I read even just recently, this is only continuing, uh, and the restaurant industry is actually taking a huge hit. The, Lunchtime um, traffic uh, growth has plummeted in the past several years uh, because so many people are either skipping lunch altogether, as I mentioned, with the kind of, you know, cobbling together of packaged foods or bringing a lunch or, or grabbing something and taking it back to, um, to their desk, maybe even just, you know, a prepared um, wrap from like Seven Eleven or a grocery store. Uh, so this is really fascinating it, and it really is driven by just this sense of um, you know, there's so the hectic pace, the ever heightened uh, pressure to be productive and to use our time to do all the things that truly matter in the day where food is is not something we have we feel we have the luxury to take time for. Uh, and and it, it, this, the surprising thing is that the, the research clearly shows, Uh, how beneficial even just a 15 or 20 minute break, uh, especially if you go outside, especially if you talk with coworkers or friends, um, that break can be so beneficial and can actually increase your productivity. So there's this amazing illusion just that more hours of, you know, butt in seat (laughs) somehow equates to higher quality work and so on. When in reality, it's actually often a creativity killer. Uh, so certainly that's one of my kind of calls to action is to take back your lunch. Um, that's a a small example of, um, of the way that a a powerful social norm that has, has, um, been cemented in workplace culture around food that each of us individually has the chance to kind of chip away at by just, uh, insisting upon that 15 to 30 minute, for ourselves to eat real food at a pace that doesn't, you know, choke you and uh, maybe even get a little fresh air.
1: Right. Yeah. And it, I'm sure that the, the economic climate is what drives this, right? The more competitive and the more scarce that jobs are, the more scared people are who have, you know, jobs of making it seem like they're not visibly working hard and visibly working long hours for fear that they may get replaced by somebody who is willing to do that kind of thing. Would you say that's true?
0: Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the most dis, um, disheartening uh, findings in, in the literature as well, in that kind of occupational science, which is that employees um, will rate their colleagues as, you know, more effective, more successful based on the number of hours they see them in the office. And it doesn't even, um, that outweighs whatever the, their actual work output may be, and so absolutely, there's that um, that that competition and that that concern about job security. Uh, the the thing that I mentioned in the book as well is that this is not uh, unique to sort of the white collar, you know, Google type of jobs. Um, we're seeing this across sectors. I mean, think of, for example, in healthcare. Um, doctors and the crazy hours that they work—they they certainly eat on the run if they even eat at all, and they're getting very little sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, transportation workers who have by far the worst health com- health outcomes of any sector—they're uh, eating on the go at, at the you know at the wheel by default. Uh, often the schedules set up for those um, trucking routes are incredibly unrealistic, uh, and they just have so much pressure and and kind of fear of. Of meeting those timelines, it's certainly they don't feel they have the luxury often to stop and, you know, stretch at a rest stop and mm-hmm. eat, um, uh, eat something, um, that will make them feel better. So this, this is really happening across sectors and it's absolutely driven, as you said, by just that, that, um, you know, those economic, um, drivers and it, it's, there's some, there are some workers who have the, the power to, to make that a daily norm for themselves. there are many, unfortunately, um, who do not. And that's another big part of my kind of call to action is actually to employers is to, um, make it the norm, whether a cultural norm within the workplace or just even a policy of, you know what, we, we really want to, um, make sure that we protect you as workers in your right to take a break so that you don't feel like a salmon swimming upstream.
1: Right. Right. And ironically, it's a lot of workers in the food industry who are kept from nourishing themselves as they work so hard to nourish others, you know, farm workers, fast food workers, Mm -hmm. restaurant workers. And, um, one of my family members is a truck driver for a bread company, you know? And so, um, yeah. And delivering bread and, and delivering food to others, he's often eating on the run or not eating at all, or just eating like an apple really quickly or something. And, um, so yeah, just thinking about, food workers, that's where my mind goes is like such an illuminating and disturbing angle on this. Mm
0: -hmm. Right. Oh, and that exactly. That is perhaps one of the worst ironies of all that those who are uh, for whom we have to thank for producing and harvesting and um, preparing our food are often very rarely able to enjoy it.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly. So in turn with all this, you know, talk of economic climate and how it affects our, um, actions and our choices when it comes to food, that in turn is affecting how food um, companies are branding themselves, marketing their products. Um, you talked about portability of food um, a few minutes ago, but you also talk about customization that we can get our food our way. And that hooks into this American ideal or value of freedom, right? I'm free to pick whatever toppings I want on this salad, or I should be able to tell you what kind of Frappuccino I want at Starbucks, right? So how have companies picked up on this value of freedom and used it to their benefit to offer lots of customization for our food?
0: Yeah, this was one of the most surprising things I learned in the research, actually, was um, how uh, long-held and kind of deeply ingrained um the uh, appreciation or desire for individualism is among Americans. Pupils have found that uh, we are just uh, such outliers compared to other countries and how much we um, put our own personal optimization um, and, and, and independence above what many others would, would um, outrank with interdependence, you know, much more communal or, or um yeah, a much more communal outlook that that sees yourself as a member of a larger collective. In the United States, we have this sense of I want to be um, different from the rest. I want to stand out from the pack. You know, be your special snowflake. Uh, and that's something that's taught to us as children very, very early on in school. Uh, in regard to food choices, this plays out in ways that I think many people don't even realize are unusual. <laughs> but uh, American fast casual companies have really taken this to new heights with. In the book, the term that um, I gathered from a, a, a consumer insights researcher is chefing. And that's this idea of, you know, when you go through the build your own, um, whether it's at Subway or Chipotle, you know, the assembly line, you're sort of participating in the uh, optimization of, of your dish to your uh, taste preferences, allergies, your mood, your um you know your spice tolerance and what have you, uh, and it's it's been a part of our our sort of foodscape for a while. But with the t- just explosion of the fast casual scene, uh, there are now there's sort of a Chipotle of every cuisine. If you think about it, right? There's Blaze Pizza, there's Kava Metze Grill, Mediterranean, and so forth, um, where you are a participant and you actually get to dictate and tailor to your needs. Uh, so more and more. Companies will, um, will really leverage this and make it known that you can go to their restaurant and have it your way. Burger King was among the first in the 1970s to kind of, um, l- latch onto that, um, that deeply, you know, that understanding that that would resonate with their, with American diners. But of course, at the time, it was the furthest thing from having it your way. It was, you know, oh my gosh, can I skip the pickle on the hamburger? And that was like, wow, that's really, some, some custom service right there. Uh, and now, of course, there you can doctor and tailor in s- such more precise ways, uh, not only through the availability of more of these fast, casual concepts, uh, whereas before it was much more rigid. You just have endless menu options, but also through technology. So mobile ordering has really enabled more and more customization as well. And the other thing that is interesting is how much customization has come to be expected in other sectors so, if you think about the fact that now, with with a whole range of online services, um, you can tailor, you know, your bicycle. You can help to build it from scratch. You could build um, Indoshino lets you actually customize your own shirt by picking the inner lining and the buttons and the cut. Uh, these were just merely not these were systems that were not possible. And so, collectively, there's across sectors. Uh, as a consumer, you expect. Customization more than before, and one last example I'll, I'll share is is in the marketing to to what you're asking. Blaze Pizza that I mentioned is actually the fastest growing restaurant chain in America, mm. and they have huge signs um, kind of emblazoned in their uh, in their restaurants that say "Chart your own course" and "Nonconformists reign," <laughs> and it's absolutely speaking to that break the mold spirit. Uh, that is playing out in our food choices more and more each each day, really.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've been to Blaze. I remember going to it in L.A. when I was um, living in Pasadena for a while. And, you know, even um, restaurants who are doing this with high quality ingredients, you know, like this is organic, whatever. This is, you know, farm to table, whatever. It still has that component of customization that you can pick and choose and um, that you have the power in that scenario.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it used to be just to that point about the high, higher end. It, it used to be like you were a troublesome diner. If you asked right. for, if you had special requests, right. you know, it was chef knows best. Like, why are you causing trouble? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that empowerment of the consumer, or I should say the consumer is more empowered today than I would say ever in our history, food, food wise, at least, uh, with, you know, bloggers like food babe able to kind of completely, um, just overwhelm a company with bad PR in, in, in her case, for instance, well, she's taken down many different companies, but Subway with the realization of, um, you know, they called it the yoga mat chemical that they found mm-hmm. within the bread. Um, so the kind of demands for transparency are also linked in with this sort of power reversal in the dynamic mm-hmm. that, you know, says no matter the type of sector, you should be able to have it your way.
1: Right. But along with this power, you talk about this kind of contradiction that we have a plethora of choices. Consumers are empowered more than ever before. But at the same time, we lose something in that ability to have food delivered the way we want it when we want it to our desk, you know, while we eat alone. Or um, we're working so hard at certain things that we're not mindful of the choices we make when it comes to reading nutrition labels for what they really are and instead falling for the non-fat, non-GMO, you know, different kinds of uh, attractive words on the packaging of our food. So what are we losing or missing out on socially now that we have all of this other power in the ways that we eat and choose our food? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, one of the biggest things is, is that just we're eating alone more than ever in our history. So the Hartman group is a consumer insights firm based in Bellevue, Washington, and they've been conducting basically a quarter long century, uh, anthropological study of American eating habits. They actually go into people's homes and, and in their cars and, and watch the ways that, that food plays a role in their daily lives. And they say that, uh, in addition to the snacking that I mentioned, the single biggest, uh, difference between the way we eat now and, and about a generation or two ago, uh, is this eating alone? And so I mentioned sad desk lunch, but customization does the same thing because if you, you know, are all about, uh, just ordering on your phone and optimizing your own, uh, as I said, mood, taste preferences, p- spice tolerance, etc., uh, it's very hard to eat with other people. And there's so much research about the social benefits of eating, uh, merely the, you know, stress relief, for instance, um, feeling part of a community. And a lot of that is lost with, uh, especially also, I should mention with, you know, delivery services, more and more, uh, people can just stay in their homes and, you know, part of the customization movement is being able to have food anytime you want it. There's this, uh, sense of it's your right to, um, not only eat what and how you eat, but, with or not with whomever you want. And at precisely the moment that you think of it, it should be at your doorstep. Uh, the, the, the really unfortunate, uh, or the reason that's so unfortunate is not only um, kind of the joy of sharing tastes, you know, let's say um, a tapas experience or, or, you know, the injera in Ethiopian cuisine, for instance, there's a lot of types of food uh, that are, From a variety of cuisines around the world that are designed to be shared. Um, Not only is that lost, but it's it's happiness. Um, Social connectedness is the single greatest driver of of happiness, from the kind of happiness literature. And social isolation in the U.S. has been on the rise. There's a great book, Bowling Alone. I don't know if you if you've read that, Lori, but that really goes into this issue uh, much more deeply. But this um, solo dining is. Uh, continuing to, uh, or is the, um, is the, the way that social isolation is playing out in terms of uh, nourishment, because food is so much more than just a transaction of nutrients. It's, uh, it's all that's wrapped up in the emotional and the um, psychological aspects of eating. And a lot of that is just falling by the wayside as we see
1: food, as as a transaction, much uh, more and more. Mm -hmm. And um, another way that, you know, solo dining is happening is through people dieting, right? Like if you are restricting carbs, if you're restricting um, fat or doing some sort of um, thing like the paleo diet, anything like that, that is another way in which you have to single yourself out. And ironically, um, what you talk about is that some of these labels are merely masking something else. So something that says non-fat could be masking like a really high amount of sugar, for instance.
0: Right. Yeah. So that's, that's a great point. Uh, The, the chapter just after that one that is called diet evangelism, but these are definitely interconnected. The selling absence, which is this um, amazing historical pattern of valuing foods for what they lack Mm -hmm. Uh, non-fat, uh, non-GMO, low calorie, the latest, kind of king of this category is gluten-free. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sense that just because you've removed the the bad thing in question that the overall product is now better. Uh, and what happens and why I say that it's connected to diet evangelism as well as the solo dining is that there's a real tribalism that happens around this. So there's this, you know, um, uh, uh, kind of infectious um well, there's just an infectious spread a lot of the times, you know, if, Oh, well, my sister's going gluten free. So I'm gluten free. And, uh, you know, that maybe they're the only two people in the family now who can eat together because they don't want to go out for family pizza night. Um, are that really kind of fragments society into these corners, uh, around the, 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 the restrictive eating protocol that they've now adopted to and are kind of are preaching, uh, but in a lot of ways, the industry, the, the kind of food marketers are, are playing them uh, because especially with gluten-free, um, the whole purpose with many people who originally were trying to raise alarm bells around products with gluten was actually to minimize the amount of processed foods that people eat. But ironically, what happened is probably all of our, the listeners have can relate to if you've been in a grocery store in the last couple of years is that more and more products have been reformulated and slapped on the gluten-free label and they charge a little more, uh, and, and people buy them because of that health halo. But in the, in the reformulating, you have to replace the gluten with something. And as you said, often it's actually, it's sugar or it's other weird additives that may even be worse Mm -hmm. than the original. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and this happens with all kinds of examples. Another one is paleo. I mean, the number of paleo products, um, you know, beef jerky and all of these different paleo bars, uh, they may allow you to um, fit into your corner that you've um, sort of isolated yourself into because of certain, you know, food values, but they're, they're not good for you necessarily. Um, it, and so in focusing so much on what they omit or uh, how closely they help you adhere to a very uh, strict regimen, It's easy to overlook all of the potentially um, negative implications. Another great example is vegan cupcakes. (laughs) (laughs) The number of people that I see gorging on vegan pastries because they're vegan, it's like, well, yeah, but it's still, you know, a total um, nutritional train wreck. um, That Mm -hmm. You're probably not going to feel that good about uh, eating afterward, Uh, but they think, well, it's vegan, so it must be healthy. Right,
1: right. Yeah, definitely health halos working there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And um, part of this is also that we love novelty as Americans, right? So like the newest thing, the newest trend, the newest um, fad that is supposed to make us healthier, we go for it. And we fall for words and branding, um, but also uh, this chapter that you have on stunt food. I had never heard that term before, these um, stunts that food companies – um, pull to introduce really novel or weird or um, intriguing food items in our market, and you focus on the Doritos Locos Taco, which I personally have never had, but I kind of want to try now that you've <laughs> talked about it. <laughs> um, so what's what's up with that? What's up with companies constantly introducing or reintroducing um, items onto menus to to grab us and to intrigue us?
0: There's a lot going on. Uh, what I will say is, you know, buyer beware. I mean, uh, I, I also will tell you just for fun that I did – uh, have Michael Pollan try a Doritos Loco's taco. He probably will be mad at knowing that I'm revealing this. Uh, but he said, well, you know, it's part of the research. We really should have better understand this thing. So we sat around and kind of investigated the, the orange residue that it left on our fingertips and all of that. Um, but no, what really is going on here is there's a couple of things. So one is I mentioned fast casual. That is the concept of, you know, kind of the Goldilocks of restaurant, right? It's a medium price point. It's, uh step above traditional fast food in terms of quality, but it's not um, the whole – it doesn't take as long as going to, like, a full-on restaurant. Uh, and this is where the largest growth in the restaurant industry is happening, is in the fast casual realm. Um, so Chipotle, as I said, is one, but there are countless concepts, um, tender greens, sweet greens, and the like. What The reason this is, re- is related is that a lot of the companies that are – Revealing these stunt food products. Uh, they're, they're the fast food companies that are really dying off in terms of popularity. They're sort of out of step with a lot of the um, greater um, demands that we talked about before around um, t- transparency and cleaner ingredients and um, where food uh, trends are heading. So they're, you know, the Taco Bells, the Wendy's, the um, uh, Carl's Jr.'s, uh, what, what you might call legacy brands. And that's the term the industry term for a lot of those fast food chains. And they're the ones who often are just trying to stay relevant. Um, so they reveal these limited time only or LTO, uh, menu options that are so shocking. It's like the clickbait of the real world, uh, that you just can't help but react. There are things like bacon Sundays at Burger King or, um, The, uh, you know, bacon-wrapped pizza at Pizza Hut, uh, three feet of bacon per pizza. Uh, The original one was KFC's uh, Double Down, which used two chicken uh, fillets, you know, bread and chicken fillets instead of bread. I mean, there are so many examples. Uh, Lately, I've been seeing a lot of cereal, like, uh, you know, Lucky Charms milkshakes and things like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the one that I go into depth with is the, the Doritos Locos Taco from Taco Bell, which was this hybrid of uh, the neon orange um, Doritos, um, cool, or, uh, you know, regular Doritos. They later came out with other Cool Ranch and so on flavors. Um, but they just married that with the kind of traditional beef taco, hard taco from Taco Bell. And the DLT, as it was known, actually sold in record-breaking numbers. It remains, to this day, one of the best-selling fast food items in American history. And it was absolutely the iconic stunt food because it grabbed your attention. It was a total stunt. It does not uh, taste particularly good, um, but that's not the point. Um, And really, what a lot of these products play into is that third value of progress. Uh, Americans you know, are known around the world for being innovative. We've got iPhones and, um, the entire kind of Silicon Valley, um, tech sector. We have, um, you know, a history of an amazing space program and medical breakthroughs, vaccines. There's all kinds of great examples of innovation at work. Uh, but this, this very forward looking aspect of our society, uh, compared with other cultures that are more rooted in tradition, uh, it means that we're, in terms of food, we're very appreciative of novelty, of new, of something we have not tried before. Uh, and, and that openness, that open-mindedness, as I talk about later in the book, is actually a great benefit to our food culture. But it also makes us sort of susceptible to these tactics, uh, in especially among fast food chains, because we feel like it's, Part of living a full life is to, uh, experience these, these novel food products, even if they are admittedly complete over the top, uh, in, you know, ridiculously indulgent items that will, um, you know, make us, you know, laying on the couch. <laughs>
1: Ten minutes later, right? <laughs> stick to our stomachs, like three tacos yeah. in, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's this um this value that you talk about with progress. Um, I want to end by asking you about um, two other things that you talked about in this book. One is wine, so you don't just stick to solid food. You talk about drink <laughs> as well, and um, you end with talking about Italian food and sort of the humble beginnings of. Um, how that cuisine was introduced into American culture, and you know the spread of ethnic cuisine in general um, in mm-hmm. society. So, can you talk a little bit about wine and Italian food? My two, one, two of my favorite things <laughs> in the world.
0: <laughs> twist, twist my arm, but yes, yeah, sure. Uh, so, yeah. So, I have this chapter that was really fun. Uh, it's called the democratization of wine, and it's this recognition that. Actually, one of the unique um, benefits of that open-mindedness uh, that Americans have, broadly speaking, that, that forward-looking outlook, that uh, willingness to try new things, um, it means that actually the the wine industry in the U.S. Is, has really um, become more available to kind of the, the everyman, if you will. Um, it, wine, for some period of time and, and still in some other places, is sort of for the elite. And in the United States, through especially Trader Joe's and Chewbac, Chuck, but also through really high-quality boxed wines or wine in the can, um, the the appreciation and accessibility to wine and the, the pleasure of it um, has really risen. And this has been, um, you know, Americans are consuming more and more wine each year, and that's um, driven a lot by the fact that the prices have come down, and part of it is... Uh, is this, this kind of like rejection that wine has to be something snooty. The, the Underwood, that's the wine in the can that I mentioned. That's a good one. I've tried that. Yeah. It's actually really tasty. Um, and they have actually even a pinkies down campaign that I thought was just so clever because <laughs> it really celebrated that idea that like, you know what, wine can be playful. Wine can be for anyone. Um, it doesn't have to be, uh, something that you, you know, sit and analyze the leather and the, the, you know, cinnamon hints and what have you. Um, it can just be something tasty and delicious that anyone can enjoy, uh, and and so that there's that kind of cultural reimagining of what wine means, but also the um, the the new types of packaging that it comes in. We we've kind of rejected this sense that good wine must come with a cork, uh, and actually, what, Underwood again um, has kind of shown it can be in a can. You can grab it and you know take it on your picnic um and and it's actually going to taste great uh, so that that willingness to um to try it and to think that maybe actually um it could be just as good is has been really fun to see the fa- the way that people um ha- that Americans have embraced wine in a much more mainstream part um of our of our broader culture uh and then with italian food the uh the, the, the surprising thing that I tried to to illustrate in the last chapter, which is the story of spaghetti, is how, uh, again, one of the benefits of, of that open-mindedness, that, that premium on progress in the U.S., has been the way that American cuisine really is a melting pot cuisine. It, is, um, it has been shaped by generations of immigrants bringing their traditional cuisines and you know, there's some debate about whether this is okay or not. But often, what has enabled authentic um, dishes from from uh, from immigrant um, countries to become sort of firmly embedded in mainstream cuisine, such as spaghetti and meatballs, which was not a dish in the in the homeland um, or in the old country. Uh, what has really enabled it is kind of um, adapting into the the mainstream flow so at the time what that meant and what that often means in the U.S. is actually just adding a heck of a lot more meat (laughs) because in the U.S. there's meat is um available in a much more abundant supply than in many uh many other countries where it's used more as a condiment because it's expensive it's um not as easy to come by and so a lot of different cuisines have have kind of um folded themselves into the, the mainstream, uh, through, through the addition of lots more meat than would have ever been used in the past. Um, but what I, what I also explore is, is just the way that, um, uh, today more than ever americans you know, it's, it's crazy for people to think that at a point in time, Italian food was considered like really daring, you know, exotic food. <laughs> um, but it was just what it was compared to. This was like the 1930s. Uh, A very Anglo-Saxon, very bland um, type of cuisine had typified quote-unquote American food. And the point that I make in that chapter is that Italian food is not the only food where um, that has expanded Americans' palates. It it was just the first to be so successful. Today, you can hardly imagine a restaurant that wouldn't have what would Often be considered Italian food. Pasta, pizza, panini, right? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Um, You see in packaged products lots of, you know, kind of Tuscan flatbread or, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, even olive oil. It wasn't so much uh, so so common uh, because we were purely reliant on butter. But so the point there is that we are willing to kind of throw it all into the mix and see what bubbles up to the surface. And that today is playing out with a rapidly expanding appreciation for a range of global types of cuisines. And I, for one hope we will do away entirely with the term ethnic food, because I think it has all kinds of problems. Right. Um, but really it's just a recognition of what is American food. It's not burgers and fries are burgers and fries, an element of American food, of course, but it's far, far, far more than that. And American food is as much, you know, Korean tacos and banh mi and poke and, Uh, non, uh, you know, (laughs) countless um, types of um, regional cuisines, even from different countries um, throughout Asia. And I'm thrilled how much excitement there seems to be among American diners today about embracing those bolder flavors, that greater variety, and truly expanding the definition of American food.
1: Yeah, that's great. And I really love how you end the book by talking about and summing up, you know, that this book has been about our eating habits as, as a society, as a nation, in ways that are very unstable and unhealthy, but also how they are open-minded, democratic, could be positive, could move, move us forward. So you give us both sides of the, of the coin there. And I think readers, um, all across the spectrum of, of eaters, right, will um, mm-hmm. be interested to kind of hold a mirror up to themselves, the people they know, society as a whole, and, and think about food and our values and our national identity and how those are all interconnected. Um, and thank you so much for talking with me about it. I'm so uh, happy to have read a former student's work. And it's just been a really fun conversation. Thanks so much, Sophie. Thank you so much. I couldn't agree more. So thank you so much for listening to this episode uh, from the New Books Network. I'm Lori Flores. I've been talking with Sophie Egan, the author of Devoured, How how What We Eat Defines Who We Are. It's coming out in paperback in just a few days, uh, July 25th. So be sure to check it out. If you want to read more about Sophie and the book, you can go to newbooksnetwork.com. Also, please follow us on social media, on Facebook and on Twitter, and also subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks so much everybody.